Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 105. So I am recording this on Monday, November 30th. Um, and I always, as I say, I always like to record the date, especially in these really, really difficult times. It's going to be great when we can look back on these episodes and have all of this behind us. <clears throat> and by this, of course, I'm talking about the pandemic and, um, you know, just all of what's happening as a result of us being, you know, kind of deep into the ninth month of this. There's great news on the horizon, though. I'm really, really um, you know, just, I don't know if excited is the right word, but, uh, optimistic because the vaccine development, I think we're up to three or four companies now that have viable vaccines. So that is just really, really great news. And hopefully by April, May, we'll be well underway in, uh, in implementing the vaccination vaccination plan and getting our lives somewhat back to normal. So I wanted to um, just talk a little bit at the start about um, a, just a, I don't wanna say a minor shift, but just uh, a shift of some kind that I'm gonna be making in my approach to working with teachers. And I've been inspired to kind of rethink some of what I am doing from a really high level perspective. And I wanna share it with you so that you have an understanding of what's kind of behind the scenes, so to speak, in terms of my motivation and what I'm offering and you know, kind of what I'm about. And it's, it's I guess you could say it's partly uh, in the spirit of being transparent. You know, it's also though, an opportunity for me to share some of what I've been thinking through and how I am going to make those thoughts part of my mission and my vision and my action plans. And this is something that I really encourage you as a yoga teacher to do as well. You know, these kinds of thought processes are what keep us 
feeling connected to something bigger than just us. It's not just that we're teaching yoga. It's that we have an overall goal for what we're doing. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to create something where you're out to change the world. It could be something really small. Um, however, the meaningful thing is uh, about it is that it should be meaningful to you. And, um, and so I just wanted to kind of share some of this because how this is actually going to play out is going to look like a couple of new offers. And I want you all to be aware of number one, what they're going to look like to a certain extent. I haven't mapped it all out. Um, and also what's really behind the revamping that I'm doing. So as I said, I've been thinking about how I want to shift my approach to working with teachers. And it's really a taking into account some of what I've learned in all the conversations I have with teachers in many different scenarios, whether it's teaching um, uh, for other people's teacher training programs like studios that hire me to do that, uh, whether it's emails I get, social media conversations, you know, conversations I have with people over social media, comments on the podcast. There's lots of different ways uh, that I hear from yoga teachers. And, you know, I'm always really in tune to what people are saying and what might be kind of underneath what they're saying, because there really always is that other level. And sometimes I'll ask a follow-up question and that's when I'll find out if my guest was on track or not. And that's how you know, sometimes deeper conversations happen. And it doesn't mean that it's a deep conversation. It just means that what it's, I guess you could say from a neuroscience perspective, it's really what what's called kind of clarifying the position the person's coming from. And so, you know, this whole idea of how our brains work, how we learn, um, what's the best way or approach to learning, especially as we get older? All of that lives under the um, framework of neuroscience. And so a lot of what I'm studying these days is in that domain. And I'm finding there are so many amazing lessons from neuroscience that I want to build into my program where I teach teachers anatomy. And the reason I want to do that is because I so want them to be successful in completing the program and implementing what they learned. And at a base level, I want them to learn. And additionally, when I am asked to teach the anatomy portion of someone else's training, namely the 200 hour training, I want the same outcome for those teachers. I don't ever want anybody to take an anatomy training from me and say what I hear teachers say a lot, which is I didn't learn anatomy in X program. And whether that's someone else's online program or someone's 200 hour training. So all of what I do is around, um, you know, kind of looking for the best format for learning. And of course, we have to keep in mind that everybody learns differently. So, you know, where you may be a visual learner, somebody else is an auditory learner. So there's always that factor as well. However, from a neuroscience perspective, when we think about as we get older, how we learn, there are some general things that, uh, that science just shows us. And 
over the past several months, as I've taken a deeper dive into learning about neuroscience, one of the things, interestingly enough, that I found out was that from the perspective of how we learn as we get older, one key aspect is that we need to have things presented to us in smaller chunks of learning rather than what you probably did in college, which was cram for an exam, not go to bed, and then take the exam the next day. That's just one example. However, you can even think about how teacher trainings are run for the most part, which is typically that there's a really long day, maybe followed by a shorter day, or maybe there's a short session on a Friday followed by Saturday and Sunday long sessions. And so while some of that is just, you know, kind of guided by the logistics of scheduling, um, if we look at it just from a learning perspective, there is a lot of neuroscience out there that basically points to this idea that people learn better when the information is broken up into chunks. Now, additionally, the other factor that I'm learning about is the effect of neurotransmitters on, on our body. And one of them in particular is dopamine. So neurotransmitters, you can think about as the chemicals that are released within the nerve cells. And um, there are different situations where these these chemicals are released. One really obvious one is if you exercise or if you're under stress, you might have a release of epinephrine, um, which is otherwise known as adrenaline. So that's just one example of one neurotransmitter. What is known about dopamine is that it is released when we are rewarding ourselves or getting a reward. And so when we look at these two concepts, the first one I shared being breaking up a big topic uh, that you're trying to learn into short sessions of learning. And then we look at this other concept of trying to set up situations where we can reward ourselves along the way so we get that hit of dopamine, which makes us feel good. When you look at those two things together, that is what really inspired me to um, implement some changes in my programs that will take advantage of those two things. So I want to tell you, you know, overall, my focus is absolutely still going to be helping teachers learn anatomy so they can share it confidently with their students. You know, that that's not going to change. But my overarching mission is really going to be more around helping teachers move past the challenges and self-limiting beliefs that are standing in their way. And those two things that I just shared with you, breaking learning up into chunks, setting up a rewards-based system so we can kind of leverage some of the neuroscience uh, uh, information to feel some of those positive effects. That's how uh, at a tactical level, I'm going to be doing things so that teachers can start to really feel like they're moving through some of those self-limiting beliefs. Because let's face it, I talk to teachers a lot who eventually do enroll in my blueprint learning program. And after a couple of weeks of going through the program, they get stuck. And when I talk to them, I find out there are different challenges that are coming up 
for them. Sometimes these things are logistical. Sometimes these things have to do with self-limiting beliefs. Like, I don't know that I can learn this. So all of what I am talking about today and the changes I'm going to be making have to do with what I just mentioned, helping teachers move past challenges and self-limiting beliefs that are standing in their way of them achieving the goals they want to achieve. So I want to talk to you about how this is going to look at a tactical level. For the past couple of years, I have done several different launches of my Blueprint Learning Program. This is my signature program for teaching teachers anatomy. Now, what I'm going to do for my December launch as a pilot program is I'm going to implement some of these neuroscience-based uh, things, formats into the launch. So what that's going to look like is that I am going to have a rewards program built in. And from a high level, what it's going to mean is, let's say you pay X amount of dollars to invest in the program. As you complete the program at several points within the program, you will reach out to me. We will do a checkpoint. Uh, coaching call where I'll ask you some questions. I'll just, you know, you'll ask me some questions. It'll just be an opportunity throughout the course of you completing the program to make sure you're learning for you to ask questions for me to kind of quiz you a little bit. And at the end of each one of those phone calls, you will earn back some of the money you invested in the program. So essentially, once you graduate from the program, you're going to actually get some money back. <laughs> and as you're going through the program, you're going to earn some of this money back as well. So there's an ongoing rewards feature and at the end of the program, when you graduate, that will be the last call you do with me, your graduation call. That'll be another opportunity to earn back some of the money you invested. So at the end of it, you'll also have graduated, you know, dopamine, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and, um, and you'll feel great about graduating. You'll feel great about the, the knowledge that you've gained and you'll feel confident teaching in a way that you didn't feel confident before. And the reason I know this is because almost all the teachers who have graduated, including Britt, who just graduated this weekend, what she related, and you can take a look at the testimonials uh, on the sales page when it comes out, is that she finally felt confident in sharing cues because she was connecting what she was saying with what she knew rather than just repeating stuff she was told to say. So um, that's how I'm gonna integrate a rewards-based program or process into my Blueprint Learning Program. And also, if you're listening and you're a member of my monthly subscription service, which is the Bare Bones Yoga Practice Portal, I'm also going to implement a rewards program there too, to reward you for practicing and doing the meditations on some level. It's not going to be anything where you have to practice every day. It's not about that. It's about rewarding you for taking care of yourself. And so um, that's going to be there as well. Now, to wrap up this part of the podcast today, here's what I want to let you know. If you want to take a look at the offer for the Blueprint Learning Program when it is available, I'm going to do it in December, probably within the next 10 days or so. 
get on the wait list because then you'll be one of the first people to know about the offer when I make it. So to get on the wait list, just go to the website, barebonesyoga.com, and you'll see the wait list link for the Blueprint Learning Program right on the homepage. If you want to check out the portal, you can also do that right off the homepage. And then the last thing I want to say in this part of today's episode is that every Monday, for the most part, at 6 p.m. Eastern, I am hosting a free yoga class in my practice portal, which is the monthly membership. So you can always join for free class. uh, And I'll be posting on social media when those free classes are. They'll also be on the events page of my website, barebonesyoga.com. So in terms of today and what we're going to talk about today, I wanted to talk about some anatomical concepts. And these are things that come up frequently when I teach um, in teacher trainings. And so I thought it would be helpful to just kind of share some of these concepts with uh, with you, the listener. Um, and they might be things that you've thought about before, or maybe talked about before, uh, or maybe things that you wondered about. So this will be a good opportunity to kind of demystify some of these things. So the first one I want to talk about is range of motion. So you may have heard this term used in different ways. You may see it in writing, you may hear it in trainings, you may hear it on different podcasts. So what does range of motion apply to? Now you may say, well, (laughs) the word range means range and motion means moving. So it's a range of moving. And that would be true, that would be true. So let's kind of break it down a little bit more. So if I look at it, within the context of human anatomy and human movement, what am I talking about? I'm talking about movement of the body. And now that I'm talking about movement of the body, I'm talking about limbs moving in space. I'm talking about anatomical movements. I'm talking about muscles acting upon bones at joints. Joints being the two, uh, joints being the spot where two bones come together. So whether I'm talking about the cup of the acetabulum and the hip and the head of the femur making the hip joint, or I'm talking about the glenoid fossa of the scapula with the head of the humerus in there making the shoulder joint, or I'm talking about the uh, pelvic bones and their connection to the sacrum, the SI joint, or I'm talking about the um, uh, surface of the tibia, the tibial plateau, and the condyles of the femur making the knee joint, you know, whatever two parts I'm talking about, it is a joint. Now, when a joint uh, is acted upon by muscles, that is how we get human movement. And when we look at human movement, we talk about it in terms of anatomical movement. So this is, uh, these are terms like flexion and extension and uh, internal and external rotation. And when these terms come up, uh, they are occurring within different planes of the body. Now, I wanna just take a pause here and say, if you are unfamiliar with the planes of the body and anatomical movements, you really need to know these things cold. These are not things that you can flub. These are the basis of understanding human movement and are the, these terms and these concepts are the basis from which, are the base from which we then learn other 
pieces of human movement for yoga teaching. So things like joints, how muscles work, um, uh, key muscles in the body, muscles in poses, what is fascia, all of what we need to know about anatomy as a yoga teacher, right? Not as a physical therapist, not as an occupational therapist, not as a massage therapist, as a yoga teacher is predicated on us knowing what I'm talking about here. So now that we have a kind of a framework around this, we're saying, okay, so joints are where two bones come together. Muscles act upon joints. As a result, limbs move. And now we can start to dive into this concept of range of motion a little bit more because we've kind of set the stage for this part of the conversation. So think about when you reach your arm up to the sky and then think about when you're teaching and you ask somebody in your class to come into warrior one and their arm might not be reaching straight up to the sky. Maybe their arms a little bit bent. Maybe they can't straighten their arm. So that's a good example of how their range of motion is different from yours. If you can do warrior one and reach your arms straight up in the air and have your quote unquote arms aligned with your ears, which is a cue you might hear, your range of motion would be different than someone else doing warrior one where their arms reaching up to the sky might be in front of their ears. So their arms might not be reaching straight up, they might be reaching up at an angle. Now, when we look at those two scenarios of those two people, you versus the student in your class, what we, what we know just from looking at the person is that the person who is not reaching straight up to the sky has some sort of limitation in their shoulders range of motion. We don't know what it is, but we can just look at them and see they can't reach their arms straight up in the air. Now, notwithstanding that maybe they didn't hear us or they don't understand the cue, let's put that off to the side. Let's assume that they get it and intellectually they know what it means to reach up in the air, reach up to the sky. But when they try to do it, they can't get their arms straight, straight up and down. So this is an example of a limitation in range of motion. Why does this happen? Well, <laughs> you might say, well, it happens because they have tight shoulder muscles. Yeah, that could be why. But what about if they have weak muscles? That could do it too. So this is a good example now of how we can't really know as teachers the source of the limitation of their range of motion. We can observe that they have a limitation, however, we can't really know it, which is another reason why all these prescriptions that yoga teachers so easily throw out, like, oh, you gotta stretch this or straighten this, really is a bit irresponsible because if you haven't really done muscle testing with the person, or worked with the person one-on-one -on -one, or have a baseline from which you're now looking at how they present today, it's really hard for you to make the assumption as to the cause of the limit in range of motion. So let's put that off to the side as one point there. Let's go back to kind of the main thing that I wanted to talk about, which is this concept of range of motion. So now that I've laid it out for you and you have a better idea, if you didn't before, of what range of motion means, I want you to think about why the hell I'm even bringing this up. <laughs> so short of just giving you the definition and, and additionally, this piece about how 
range of motion and variances in it will be observed by you as a teacher. The other reason I'm bringing it up is because I want you to think about how every time you teach a pose, you as the teacher have an opportunity to use cues and to offer different presentations of that pose, i.e., you know, variables for that posture or or what do they say? How do they call them? Um, uh, variations or yeah, variations of the posture, which might require greater range of motion. And so you as a teacher, if you understand anatomy, should be really intentional about when you offer uh, variations in a posture um, that require more range of motion. Because in general, as you require more range of motion from people in your class, that is going to increase the potential risk to them if they have, and again, I don't know, but if they have really tight muscles in the joint that is at cause or that is involved in your variation you're offering. Now, let's take an example, a really basic example of what I'm talking about here. Let's imagine you're teaching, you teach, uh, you have people come into warrior two. Then you have them come into side angle. Then you have them take the upper arm, uh, extended, yeah, side angle, extended side angle. Then you have them take the upper arm behind their back. Then you have them take the double bind. So I hope you can see that every successive variation from extended side angle to half bound side angle to double bound side angle, as I progress, once I hit that third variation of that pose, the range of motion requirement from my students in that upper shoulder and lower shoulder to a certain extent increases. And when it increases, what does that really mean in terms of the demand on the joint? It means I need greater mobility. I need greater flexibility in one plane and greater strength in another plane. So in the example of side angle with the advanced variation, I want you to imagine you're in warrior two with your right foot forward. Then I want you to imagine you come into side angle with your right arm on your thigh, your left arm to the sky. Then you take extended side angle, left arm reaching over your head. Then you take your left arm behind your back, right? So then you take the advanced variation and you take the double bind. So now imagine your upper shoulder, which is your left shoulder. You're asking your body to have tremendous range of motion in the transverse plane because that upper shoulder is an external rotation, which means your teres minor and your infraspinatus need to be strong enough to pull the head of the humerus back and your pectoralis minor, pectoralis major, and subscapularis, which are internal rotators and shoulder flexors, need to be lengthened enough so that you don't hunch and look at the ground. So the cumulative effect of this is that the range of motion of the shoulder needs to be pretty good in order to allow you to do that variation. Otherwise, what you'll see as a teacher is people hunched over and looking at the ground. Now, I want to make two points here. When I say range of motion, I want you to envision the gas gauge on your car with empty being way on the left and full being way on the right. And that little needle that is a gauge. 
Now I want you to take that metaphor and I want you to apply it to your joint. I want you to apply it to your shoulder joint in this example. And I want you to think about someone who's super, super tight and can't move their shoulder at all with their gas gauge needle all the way to the left. Then I want you to imagine some, someone that's hypermobile, too much mobility, really, really flexible. And their gas gauge needle is all the way to the right. So now instead of gas gauge, I want you to think of that needle and that scale as, as one that's measuring joint mobility. And that is what's called a goniometer. A goniometer is a protractor-like device <laughs> that has a moving arm on it. And what it does is it measures range of motion in a joint. So if you go to physical therapy and you've hurt yourself, chances are your PT is gonna pull out a goniometer or a, go a goni, they call it sometimes, and they're gonna measure your range of motion. And they've got a chart that says, this is what normal range of motion is for this joint and that joint and this joint and that joint. Now we're not doing that in yoga class. As teachers, we're looking at people, we're giving them cues, we're looking at them. We might say, oh, that person is quote unquote out of alignment. But what it might really be a more anatomically correct descriptor for that person might be that they have limited range of motion. So again, you know, back to what I said earlier, if you don't know what anatomical movements are and you can't describe them, you have no business going into any of this stuff. So if, if, if that is a big question mark for you, you got to go back and you got to learn that stuff. Now I will tell you, all of this is in my blueprint learning program. This is the exact blueprint that I use to teach teachers anatomy because I am so um, just really focused on breaking the subject down into understandable parts in large part because what I talked about at the beginning, what, what's known from neuroscience is that you gotta chunk things out, especially if the subject is complex. And let's face it, anatomy is a complex subject. So now that we've talked about range of motion, what I wanna now launch into is talking about joint mobility and how different joints have different levels of mobility. So I want you to think about and envision in your mind, Michael Phelps swimming and doing the butterfly. Now I want you to envision a pitcher pitching in a baseball game. Now I want you to envision a weightlifter bench pressing. And I also want you to envision, um, trying to think of another example on the spot here. Well, I can't think of another example. What, so now that I've given you those three examples, I want you to see if you can connect to the idea that in the first two examples, Michael Phelps doing the butterfly stroke and the pitcher pitching the ball, the baseball, versus a weightlifter bench pressing a lot of weight. I want you to see if it, makes sense to you that in the first two examples, swimming and pitching, that's that movement is an illustration of the tremendous mobility that is uh, available in the shoulder joint. Then I want you to think about, and now that I'm thinking this isn't the best example, but I want you to think about the person bench pressing and just think about how in that scenario, there isn't as much of a need for joint uh, mobility as there is for joint strength. Okay. Now let me give you one other scenario because I think this will probably make a little bit more sense. Um, I want you to, um, let me see here. 
uh, <laughs> thinking on the spot here. I want you to think, all right, here's one. I want you to think about if you're in chair pose, we can kind of think about this almost like swimming. If you're in chair pose, arms reaching up and you, you stay in chair and you swing your arms back like airplane. And then you reach your arms up to the sky and then you swing your arms back. And I want you to just envision you're sitting in chair, but you're kind of moving your arms up and down. So you're moving through shoulder flexion, shoulder extension, reaching up shoulder flexion, reaching back shoulder extension. Now I want you to think about coming into half pigeon on the floor. And as you bring, if you're having your right leg forward, as you bring your right knee forward and you place your right knee on the ground, I want you to just kind of get into your body and imagine you're coming into pigeon, half pigeon. So in the first example, uh, see if it resonates with you, the idea of that movement being pretty fluid, unless you've got some, again, limited range of motion in your shoulders, that's a pretty fluid movement versus something like coming into half pigeon, where even if you've got a lot of flexibility, although less so if you do, it is limited in terms of the movement itself. Now, the reason I'm giving you these examples is because I want you to start to connect to the idea of the type of joint it is having a natural connection to um, the mobility afforded to you. And so when we look at joints that are ball and socket joints, like hips and shoulders, for the most part, we're going to get more mobility from those joints than a joint like the elbow or the knee, which is more of a hinge and the knee is a bit of a hinge pivot. So that has implications for us as teachers as we're bringing people into different poses. And half pigeon, standing half pigeon are, is a, are great examples because those postures um, really have not only movement at the knee, but movement up the kinetic chain at the hip. And how you present that makes a big difference. So if you're teaching half pigeon and you're not helping people understand that their hips generally gonna have more mobility than their knee as they come into that pose, they may try to get mobility out of their knee when the better candidate is the hip just by virtue of its infrastructure, ball and socket versus hinge hybrid. So um, that's, that's another concept, this idea of joint mobility and different joints having different levels of mobility. Now, the next thing I wanna talk about is this idea of using the variable of degree of movement as a variable when you're offering modifications. So this is, you know, when I say degree of movement, this is kind of like range of motion. So I want you to think about an example where I have somebody do um, a lunge, not a crescent lunge, but I have somebody, let's imagine you're in warrior, I'm sorry, let's imagine you're in down dog. And I say, step your right foot forward, stack your right knee over your heel, Squeeze your back thigh so your back knee's off the ground. Now take your hands, bring them inside your front foot. You could even have them on a block. And I want you to just take a moment to lengthen through that back leg. Keep your right knee stacked over your heel. Keep your hips pretty much the same level. So in that scenario there, uh, the students are in a basic lunge. Now, if I want to progress that, I could say, drop your back knee to the ground and bring your 
uh, forearms to the block. So now I've lowered them closer to the floor. They're still in that lunge. Now, if I wanted to progress it further, I could add some external rotation. I could say, turn your right foot out to the right a little bit. And then if I wanted to progress it even further, I could say, come onto the knife edge of your right foot and open your right hip even more. So those are four variations where I am using the degree of movement as a variable to increase the requirement for range of motion from the hip and in effect also the knee. Now, if I look out in class and I see a lot of just people out of alignment, I can, as I say here in this point here, I can use the variable of degree of movement as the variable to offer modifications. So rather than pull everybody out of the pose, I can you know, say, hey, if you're finding that you're sitting in your hip joint, if you find that you've lost the alignment of your front knee over your heel, I want you to go back and regress it, right? So progressions and regressions are exercise science terms. Um, not really yoga terms, but we can use them here. I want you to go back to an earlier iteration of this posture. So that's an example of me uh, using uh, the, the uh, factor of degree of movement as a variable to offer modifications. Another way to think of it, where I use the gas gauge in the earlier example, I want you to think of a volume knob, a volume knob on your car radio, you know, not many of us are listening to the car radio, but if you were, uh, and think about the volume knob as a, a metaphor for turning up the requirement of the student. And you can think of that in terms of a requirement of additional range of motion or a deeper variation in the pose, however you wanna think about that. And so as I'm teaching, if I wanna offer modifications, one of the, you know, high level generally applicable modifications I can offer is just to turn the volume down. Turn down the amount of, um, not really effort, but turn down the range of motion requirement that I am asking for from the students. And that is a really good just general tool to have on your tool belt when you go in and teach a class. So, um, Another one, and I think this is, yeah, this is going to be the last one, is this idea that, and this again really comes from exercise science. You know, my, my background as a personal trainer, even though I don't work as a personal trainer, I have two certifications from uh, NASM. I love, love, love the trainings that they offer. So if you're out there and you're interested in that kind of thing, I would highly encourage you to pursue that because the exercise science information uh, is really, really great uh, for yoga teachers as well. Now, having said that, um, this idea that this last piece comes from that, this idea that the body will look for the easiest way to perform a movement even if it's not the most biomechanically sound. So I want you to think about when you're teaching and you see people, you know, take a particular posture in a way and you're kind of in your head thinking, I wonder why this person is doing it that way. Now, what this particular concept takes into account is that um, the person may intellectually understand what you want them to do. However, they may not have, and here's one of these terms again, the 
available range of motion in the joints that need it. So the body and all its magic may just try to get the person into the pose by kind of trying to get range of motion from a nearby joint if the one that they really need to use if they were approaching the posture from a biomechanically sound way is too tight or limited in some way, who knows what the source of it is. So what you might see is a person out of alignment when really what's happening is underneath the skin, there's some limitation there. And, you know, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, sometimes teachers will look at students who are quote unquote out of alignment and they think it's just a matter of, well, maybe they didn't hear my cue. So maybe I need to rephrase it and then they'll be able to do it the right way. When in actuality, you know, what it might be is that there's some infrastructure issue, right? So there's something with a muscle or something with a bone or something with the joint that is preventing them from approaching that posture in the most biomechanically sound way. And I guess you could kind of also say correctly, but I, I don't really love using that term. Um, so let's just say biomechanically sound way. And you won't necessarily know what that is. Now, again, from exercise science, there's this term known as a muscle compensation. And you can think of a muscle compensation. There's several different kinds. You can think in general of a muscle compensation as um, a muscle that is not working optimally. So it's kind of doing a bit of a workaround. And sometimes it's not even that it's doing a workaround, it's that some muscle nearby is doing a workaround to compensate for the one that's not pulling its fair share. So again, there's a number of different um, uh, definitions for muscle compensations. Right now, I just want you to think about this broad concept of a muscle compensation being a muscle that's really not pulling its fair share. And those are many times what is at cause when you're teaching and you see someone and in your head, you're thinking, maybe they didn't hear me, let me just rephrase it. Even when you rephrase it though, the person still may not be able to correct themselves. Now, having said that, and just this one last thing before I wrap this episode up, it is possible that, and this is again, why you've got to know the anatomy, right? You can't just be saying stuff without knowing the anatomy because in this particular example, if you understand anatomy, your rephrasing of the cue will be able to speak to exactly how they ideally have to move to correct the compensation that's happening. And this is where your corrective cue you provide, so your round two cue, is actually an opportunity for the student to correct that compensation, which is an amazing opportunity that you have as a yoga teacher to impact that student beyond that one pose. Because now what you're doing is you're giving them a cue that's triggering a muscle that's maybe too tight or too weak or whatever the source of the compensation is. And now because of the way you rephrase the cue, they were able to eke out some movement maybe that they weren't able to access before. And if they do that, quote unquote, correctly more than doing it, quote unquote, incorrectly, 
thus exhibiting the compensation. Now you're starting to retrain muscle. How amazing is that? Now your impact is maybe that person is going to come up to you and they're going to say, oh God, for the past couple of weeks, I've been really noticing my back pain is going away or my hip pain is going away. And you know, those things, I mean, granted, you would have to be really working probably one-on-one with a student to have that. The point is though, you know, these kinds of things are possible because we all have muscle compensations. Many of them are related to bad posture. Many of them are related to repetitive movements that we are doing. And when we have these compensations, when we have these repetitive movements, when we have the cumulative effect of bad posture, the cumulative effect of injuries, scar tissue, fascia problems, and all of it, our body basically becomes a whole network of muscle compensations, right? And then we go to a massage therapist and we get a massage and we're like in so much pain and the massage therapist is saying, oh my God, you have this type thing and that type thing, you know, whatever it is. Or we go to a personal trainer and they say, oh gosh, we really got to correct this and that and the other thing. So that's why this is, you know, number one, helpful for us to know and recognize as yoga teachers. And number two, helpful for us to recognize in our own body. Because, you know, in closing, I'll just say all of this applies to us too. It's not like it just applies to the people we teach in class. So we have reached the end of today's episode. I want to ask you, uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you for listening. And if you're still listening, I want to you know, give you a virtual gold star um, to just kind of acknowledge you for really, you know, taking the time to listen to the whole episode. I'd love to know what you learned. So send me a, uh, a, a message on social media. Let me know, take a picture of you listening to the episode on your phone and just put a comment, send me a DM. Somehow let me know something that you learned from this episode. I would love, love to know that. And then the other thing I wanna just um, reiterate that I mentioned at the beginning, for the most part, every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, I'm gonna be doing a free yoga class in my practice portal. And all you gotta do when you go to my website is check the events page and you'll see that listed. And then I talked in the beginning at length about the new format I'm gonna use for my December launch of the Blue Cook Learning Program where there's gonna be a rewards program built in. I am super excited to offer this. I'm gonna limit this enrollment to only five teachers. So if you are interested in the least, all you got to do is get on the wait list because at least then you'll hear first about the offer and you can decide if you want to take advantage of it. So all of this you guys can find on the website, barebonesyoga.com. I want to thank you again so much for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my Mentorship Program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.